0: Only from Rustolium.
1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: On the last episode of Guilt,
2: it reminded me straight away of um, Billy T. James. Similar sort of face and that, but this guy had a straight, deadpan face, yeah, expressionless face. And sitting with beside him
1: was this beautiful blonde.
2: The other thing is, um,
1: they also say, "Well, have you been up to the swimming hole um, in mm. the Prakawai?"
0: And he would just search for years, walking all the tracks, going off the tracks. It, it just, um, it could just consume them.
1: I was the last one that probably ever saw them alive. And I, I've never told anybody.
0: They've obviously been digging, and I've just pulled a bone out. There's a piece of bone right here. From Brevity Studios, I'm Ryan Wolf. and this is Guilt. In the last episode, I introduced a brand new witness in this case, former landowner Barry Lindsay, who told me of his critical sighting of who he believes was hiding in Urban being driven by a mouldy man with an expressionless face down Parakawai Quarry Road late one afternoon in early April 1989. This is the very same remote country road that provides access to the forest block where Urban Hogland's body would be discovered in October of 1991. According to the police's theory on this case, and the one used to convict David Tamahedi, this sighting should not be possible. Let me remind you that it was the police theory then, and today, that Heidi and Urban were murdered by David Tamahedi in the remote area of Crosby's Clearing, 73 kilometres away on the west coast of the Coromandel Peninsula. So the question remains. How did they end up here, driving up this remote road? Other than Barry, the last-believed sighting of the couple was at a hairdresser's in Thames on Friday, April 7th. In this episode, you'll hear from a new, never-before-heard witness that I believe provides the missing link. Much like Barry Lindsay, this man has sat on this sighting 34 years without realizing its importance, and has never spoken to anyone but me. But before we hear from him, I want to cover an important topic, the timeline of movements of David Tamahedi before and after the disappearance of Heidi and Urban. Is it possible they may hold some vital clues? Just to give you a bit of perspective for this area. The Coromandel Peninsula is a large finger of land that juts out from the east coast of the North Island of New Zealand. On the west coast of this peninsula is the town of Thames. It is here that we find Tararu Creek Road and the site Tamahedi alleges he stole the white sabaru. Then on the east coast of this peninsula is Whangamata and the Parakawai and Wentworth valleys, the location of Barry's sighting and Urbans body. The shortest distance by vehicle between these points is 73 kilometres by car, however it is possible to cross this distance via tramping tracks through the thick native bush. As the crow flies, not taking into account elevation change or difficulty, It's approximately 23 kilometers. It's difficult tramping following low river valleys and high ridges but the point is that it's possible to cross from one side to the other through the bush on foot. It is through this area that we're going to track David Tamahedi's known and unknown movements. My primary material is David Tamahedi's own testimony from his trial, which is useful, as it includes reference to witnesses who were able to corroborate where he says he was. Although this is not always the case. Let's take a look, starting on Thursday, March 30th, 1989, eight days before Heidi and Urban would disappear. Tamahedi tells the court. But after a stay at the Sunkist Lodge in Thames, he leaves and hitchhikes his way to an area not too far south of Thames called Maritodo, where he spends the night at a place called Wires Camp. He tells the court that while there, he searches for a particular track, which he is unable to find. He speaks to a farmer who gives evidence in court that he did indeed meet Tamahedi here. He then states that he packed up his gear about Sunday, April second, and crossed over via the wires track down into the Wentworth Valley. It is on this downhill stretch towards Wentworth that he meets the mountain bikers David Reed, David Thorpe, and Lynn Patricia Jones, who I spoke of in the last episode. They corroborate Tamahedi's presence around this time. He now claims that he walks into the nearby town of Whangamata for supplies and then returns to the Wentworth Valley, where he grabs his pack and hikes up to a nearby ridge and camps the night. Monday morning, being April 3rd, he states he follows a road through the forest before dropping down off the ridge into the valley, following the Tidore River. He then follows the river through the forest until it meets with the Kopu Hikawai Highway. Here, he says he hitches a ride over the summit and is dropped at the Paranui Track. The people that allegedly gave Tamahidi a ride never came forward. He walks down the Kauronga Valley Road, then stays at the Booms Flat campsite the night of April 3rd. It needs to be noted that this is an extremely long day's tramp, is achievable, again, no witnesses come forward to corroborate seeing Tamahiti at Boom's flat campsite. He then tells the court that on Tuesday, April 4th, he follows the Boom's track out of Karonga Valley and up to Crosby's Clearing, where he spends the night camped in the Pines. He describes it as being the same spot Jason Donald saw his tent a month earlier, with the note signed Pat Kelly no one comes forward to corroborate Tamahiri did use the Booms track or stay at Crosby's at this time. On Wednesday, 5th of April, he tells the court he follows the track north, crossing the Tapu-Koro Highway, where he camps on the other side of a mountain known as the Camel's Back. Again, no one comes forward to corroborate his movements this day. He then spends Thursday the 6th and 7th in the same area, before dropping off the track into the Tamatrix River on Saturday the 8th of April. He tells the court he came out at the coast where he gathered shellfish, then spent the night in a scenic reserve below Tapu. There were no witnesses to these movements on these three days. On Monday 10th of April, Tamahiti says he then carried on down the coast until he reached Tararu Creek Road, which he then walked up. When asked if he saw anybody on Tararu Creek Road or thereabouts, he says he said hello as he passed two old ladies walking a dog. These old ladies were never found. Upon reaching the end of the road, he finds the white Subaru station wagon and steals it, driving it to the sun-kissed lodge where he checks in for the night. April 11th, he takes three tourists on a tour of the Coromandel. On April 12th, he drives the car to Auckland with the one female passenger who he drops at a backpacker's. She corroborates this story. He then dumps the car at the Auckland train station, pawns Heidi and her barn's tramping packs and returns home to his wife and children at Blockhouse Bay Road in Auckland, taking with him the Swede's jacket leggings and binoculars. Tamahedi tells the court he remained here until the 27th of April, at which time he returned to the Sunkist Lodge in Thames by bus and stayed for two nights. He says he enters the bush and stays for one night before deciding to return to Auckland by bus because the weather is too poor. Tamahedi is then arrested on May 24th when he's discovered as a bail jumper for the rape charges, and the rest you know. What you've just heard are Tamahiri's movements, as told by him, from March 30th through to April 27th. Notably, the portions of this timeline that are able to be corroborated by witnesses are the beginning and the end. However, his movements between the dates of April 4th to 10th are completely uncorroborated. Not one person came forward to say they saw him on the forest tracks during this time. No person saw him walking on the roadside and the people that he says picked him up hitchhiking never came forward. We do know, for a fact, Tamahiri was in Wentworth campground. 900 metres from where Urban's body would eventually be found, on April the 3rd or the 4th. The next confirmed sighting is him checking into the Sunkist Lodge in Thames, in Heidi and Urban's White Subaru, on April 10th. It doesn't mean his movements between those dates didn't happen, but it does mean they're not proven. And what is the reason for the two-hour trip back from Auckland to the Coromandel by bus on April 27th? Tamahidi claims that he had run into a police officer in Auckland and believed he was about to be sprung. So he fled. Only to return three days later. If we believe his story, the weather was poor, so he returned home. But it is a curious trip back into the same area of bush near Thames. The same area as Crosby's Clearing and Tararoo Creek. Remember, at the time of this three day trip, Heidi and Urbane had been missing for three weeks. But of course no one knew this, and wouldn't know for another three weeks. You know me, I don't like to sit on my hands. So I wanted to go and visit some of these locations. Tamahedi claims he walked during this period. So I was back in the ute, and Alan and I were off to the Coromandel. So we've come, now I'm just kneeling down in the middle of the road at a road close sign. Uh, We've driven quite a way now, and we're at the spot that apparently David had said that he he tramped through to this point, to this point, and it was here that he, was, he um, hitchhiked from here further on. And, I mean, we've been driving for a good half an hour, and this bush is incredibly thick, so I'm gonna put the drone up here, just to get a better idea of, of the kind of land that we're looking at, because it is incredibly, incredibly rough. I'm standing on the Kaupahikauai Highway, and now, with the drone in the air, I'm able to get a great view of the Tairua River, and the dense forest that stretches to the horizon in the direction of Wentworth Valley. It's both incredibly beautiful, and incredibly dense. As the crow flies, it's 13 kilometres from the ridge above Wentworth to where I'm standing. I've been told that Tamahidi was a machine and could cover big distances with a heavy pack. But by anyone's standards, it's a hell of a hike. Alan and I crowd over the screen, and he points out the first section of the route Tamahidi claims he took on april third, nineteen eighty nine. So that's south down there. Yeah, right? So yeah. go
1: around a bit more. So here's oh, the road. We're on the road, okay. So I go back. There'll be the Tyro River, It'll be down here, so I'm gonna keep going.
0: Yeah, see so there's a river that I saw there.
1: Yeah. That's the Tyro river there. oh no. yeah. Ah no, that's better. You now see it going around and going yeah. way up and it follows the bottom yeah. of that green.
0: Oh, so that's where he would have come from.
1: No, yeah, he would have walked down there and come around. Or oh, he's come straight up here to here.
0: Yeah. But it's neither
1: here nor there. Mm. Whichever way he goes, about the same distance. But that's where he's come from. Way the f- way up there. Uh, there's the back. Um, so this is where he's come from, and he way over in here, way over, and all through here. So yeah. he's saying so. He's come along, maybe went worse way over behind there. Fuck! I mean that's Come come normal. all the way along there, and he's dropped down. Right. He's come away from way over the back. Come up right along or somewhere here and drop down. And then come all the way down. Oh, I
0: see what you mean. And then he's, and then he's saying he's come yeah, he's down and down. He's come all the way down this. here.
1: And out either down there or here. And he's got a hitch to arrive from here over the other side.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's fucking... I mean, look at that. I mean, that there's not so bad, obviously, but... no, nah, it's worse than that <laughs> up
1: there. Fuck's like this. Up there's like this. This sort of country. Around there to be to be bloody like we just drove around big steep it's
0: rugged down and I run the drone battery dead, admiring the spectacular scenery, and pack up to head to the next location. But as we drive off, we see a dirt track down into the bush towards the river, so decide to take advantage of our four-wheel drive and make our way down through the trees until it reveals the a River, snaking its way through the forest over a bed of rocks, made smooth over millions of years. So we've just driven down off the Kopahikawai Road, and David, this is the spot that we surmise that David must have come off and then jumped in the car to hitchhike on State Highway 25, uh, standing next to the Tai River now which has actually got a bit of a flow to it it's a beautiful spot but even from here looking back up you know this is this is thick bush, native bush it's um, we're not talking about pine forest with lots of room to move we're talking thick overgrown native bush you know I'm not saying that he didn't do it but walking through here with a sixty-plus-pound pack that he was renowned for. Yeah, it certainly seems a um, a big ask in the time frame that he said he did it. But you know, then he was out in the bush a lot. It's, you know, it's it's possible. But this is going to be something we're going to put to the test. Yep, yeah, beautiful country out here. Classic New Zealand. Following State Highway 25, we continue over the summit and down towards Thames. It's not a great distance, and after about 20 minutes, we're driving up the Kauronga Valley, towards a campsite known as Booms Flat. This place is of interest, as it's the location Tamahedi claims he stayed on April 3rd, after his epic sojourn cross-country from the Wentworth Valley. It's also significant for a couple other reasons. In Tamahedi's first ever interview with police in this case, he was asked how he could explain having Heidi and Urban's jacket, binoculars and leggings in his wife's Auckland home. His initial claim was somewhat bizarre in that he claimed he had found a cardboard box sitting at the Booms Flat campsite, and inside were these items and the packs he pawned in Auckland. Once he realised police knew he had been connected to the vehicle, he changed his story, and said he didn't find the items here. But it is somewhat curious as to why he picked Booms Flat as the spot for this lie. Of course, it would be logical that if he did stay here, as he claims, that this would be a spot, he realistically could have found the items. Remember, his story of staying at Boom's flat on April the 3rd was never corroborated. But is it possible that he somehow knew Heidi and Urban had stayed in this campsite? Corroborating his lie that they could have accidentally left a box with the items found in his wife's home. No one knows with certainty where Heidi and O'Ban spent their nights from April the 6th onwards. The last known location they camped was in Waihee on April 5th. During the police investigation, witnesses came forward from all over the Coromandel, saying they had seen the couple between April 5th and 7th. But many of these sightings clashed, and quite simply, they couldn't all be true. However, there was one particular sighting that seems to stand out from the rest. And this was of a couple seen on Saturday April 8th at Boom's flat campsite. So we're heading up Kauronga Valley Road uh, which runs next to Thames on the other side of Tararoo Creek Road, uh, again it's it's pretty bushy but it's a bit more built up than the other side, there are houses and things along the way. so coming up this way because there are a couple potential sightings of Heidi and Urban up this way uh, by some Air Force cadets and then uh, a couple other people, but it's interesting to think why he picked Booms flat. did he know that they had been here and as a result, you know, that might be corroborated by someone else who might say, oh yeah I saw them there so it could make sense that he found this box of things there, so Yeah, we're going to go check it out, get some eyes on the ground and see what it looks like. Uh, Alan's been up here and looked around a bit before, so uh, he can show me around. So yeah, let's uh, keep driving.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: At 2.45 p.m. on Saturday, April 8th, 1989, A group of 50 New Zealand Air Force cadets were in the Kauranga Valley and one of these men, Robert Owens, recalled seeing a white Subaru station wagon at a camping area at the top of the valley. As he drove past, he noted the vehicle had gear neatly stacked in the back up to the windows and even recalled the registration plate began with an H. He stated that as he drove past further He noticed in the rear-vision mirror a bull bar on the front of the car, and remembered thinking it would be good for camping, being a four-wheel drive. He also said it was dusty up the sides. When the cadets passed the same spot 45 minutes later, the vehicle was gone, but about 20 meters from where it had been parked, they recalled seeing a green tent and a woman with blonde collar-length hair and a man with fairish brown hair down to the ears, and shoulder length at the back. Both were described as being early to mid-twenties, and between 5'9 and 6'. The description is an absolute perfect match for Heidi and Urban, and their vehicle registration plate was HF8593, so began with an H, as Robert Owens recalled. However, this sighting was discounted by police as not being the Swedes for one specific detail. How could it be Heidi and Urban if the vehicle had left and they were still there? Oh, here's Lansar right here. Might as well park in here Yeah, that's where they were go. So we've just driven up Karonga Valley Road for a good 15 minutes or so and yeah, right in the bush now it's on the way up to Pinnacles actually if you're not familiar uh, but yeah, so we've hopped out here now and there's a, uh, a campsite okay, so where was the, so you you know the spot in here
1: so the Subaru was parked, would have been parked just there, or maybe back down a little bit on the side of the road. And this here would have been a lot shorter then.
0: We hop out and make our way into the campsite. It's simply an open area of grass in a deep valley, with forest completely surrounding it on all sides. This is not a private site. There are no facilities other than a long drop toilet. It's beautiful, quiet and with a remote feel, despite being only a short drive from Thames. Oh, so this is where it was actually, this is where people said they saw it. Yeah, the the, The um, cadets. Yeah, the cadets. Oh, so they actually said they saw it right here at Booms.
1: Yeah, they parked there, remember, when they drove up? Yeah, okay, yep. And there was nobody there. Then when they drove down, what was it, about
0: an an hour later? It was gone. 3.30? Yeah. The vehicle
1: was gone, but they saw the tent.
0: I wonder if they could have just moved the vehicle. Somewhere and into a different spot. Yeah, of course they could have. I mean, yeah. they might have thought, oh, hey, we won't leave it out there. It might get broken into or something. They might have just moved it in behind the trees here somewhere.
1: So they could have been parked there. Yeah, and driven in. Um, but I don't know how high this stuff was mm. back then. I think from the the old aerial photographs, it's quite short. Yeah. So you know, from the, when you drove down and back then, thirty years ago, it might have been quite. Mm quite open and visible here but they saw the tent around about here somewhere roughly here from the road so it's not far
0: yeah
1: this is where they claim they saw the blonde
0: yeah um in the siding with that car and just the fact that it had the license plate that with the h and then the other guy that graham told me about with this pretty much bang on same license plate up this road as well when I spoke to Graham Pierce, the man that found Heidi's jacket up the track to Crosby's Clearing, he told me of a local elderly man who was a resident of the Karonga Valley, who said he believed he had also seen the Swede's car up this valley that weekend. So either there's another couple driving the same style of car, with a registration plate starting with H, who look exactly the same or it was Heidi in her barn. Alan's been up here before and shows me the exact location Tamahiri says he found the box in his initial lie to police, which coincidentally happens to be in the same area the cadets say they saw the couple on Saturday April 8th.
1: If you have a look at the map I gave you that Tamahiri drew where he found the gear, mm. And it's right there in the boxes.
0: Oh, so this it. is where he said he saw it. This is where he said he
1: found the gear, the
0: boxes. I mean, that's too much of a fucking coincidence yeah. that you've got people that say they saw a tent here yeah. and then he said he had to have seen them here.
1: Yeah, so he put a cross about here. It's just here or there. Right? You you have a look on the, mm. on the thing because when you, you see his drawing, uh, yeah. it comes up and then the road splits off up there. You can yeah. see it? Yeah, and I saw the big that. Pines have been cut out now there's the big mm. pines up behind there so this is where he claims he found the boxes mm. right yeah why the fuck would he pick here
0: is it a coincidence that tamahedi picked this exact spot for his story that he found the box the same spot the cadets claim to have seen the swedes or is there something more to this in reality there were two specific reasons police discounted this sighting. The first is the car being gone. But the second, and more importantly for their case, if this were the Swedes at Booms Flat, then the Crosby's clearing sighting, allegedly of Tamahedi and Heidi, would be impossible. As they couldn't be two places at the same time. Unfortunately, I discovered the cadet that saw the car and the couple at Boom's flat, Robert Owens, recently passed away, so I can't ask him. But for me, I don't see any reasonable explanation as to how this couldn't have been Heidi and her barn. Given the campsite's close proximity to Thames, which was their last known location, the fact no one knows where they camped this night and that store owner Graham Manning had even recommended this exact location to them two days earlier. So how do we explain the car being gone? There is one obvious possibility that they had met someone who for whatever reason was moving or using their car. Uh, yes, yeah, so leaving Booms Flat now we're heading back down and can't help but feel that If the cadets did see the tent and everything in the car in this place, they said they did. And that's also the same place Tamahiri said that he saw the box. It's a hell of a coincidence. We leave the Karonga Valley and head south out of Thames, making the turn off to Maratodo, and the site of the location Tamahiri camped on April 1st, before he made his way over the Wires track and down into the Wentworth Valley on April the 2nd. Today, it's just a wet, empty paddock at the base of a hill. We climb a fence, and find the exact tree Tamahiri likely camped under 34 years earlier. Alan, and his extensive knowledge of the Coromandel, has become an invaluable resource for me during this investigation. He spent years of his life in this backcountry, trapping possums and hunting okay so we've just gone down Wires Road and we're at the Maritoto car park well not car park uh, we're at the Maritoto the old campground uh, we've just crossed her uh, where the stream comes down there's a ford and now we're just walking into a yeah the old campground she's pretty boggy so this is where Tamahedi says that Before he ended up going over to Wentworth, he got dropped off, walked up here, and camped a night. And someone actually saw him camping here with a fire. And this is the Tocha tree that he was camped under.
1: One of these two. Yes.
0: And then which way does the track go from here?
1: There was a toilet over here, an old long drop. Oh, okay. And I think this was the Boy Scouts campground, I think they called it. And that's your road that goes up. We'll go up there in a minute. And it goes up to the end, and that's where the track starts. Oh, OK. And the wires goes... The wires track, they call it, goes right up. And then you got the circle track. Then it drops down into the Wentworth Valley. It's, you come down into the Wentworth Falls. Yep. So this is where the Chapman's two sons, I think, were chatting to... to, oh, to oh, OK. To Tamahiri and... There was another sighting, the landowner who came up to sight his rifle and remember? yeah, He was talking to him as well. Oh, okay. So there was you know, three or half a dozen
0: people. Oh, so he was definitely here. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yep. Yep. He, yeah. But he even says himself yep. that he used to camp here and then he walked up the back yep. and...
0: So from here to Wentworth, he'd get there in a day? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just up and over?
1: Yeah, it's probably about three, three hours, right. two or three hours away.
0: Oh, so probably on, yeah... Yeah, okay. We hop back in the ute and make the 5-minute drive up the hill to the start of the wires track over to Wentworth, which is so named due to the power lines that once ran across connecting the two valleys. Mm. So we're now at the wires car park, so this is Where you can go right over the top and down into Wentworth. So it says six hours, uh, but you know, you could do it a lot quicker than that, more than likely. And so this is where Tamaheri said he came over to here to get to Wentworth, where it all sort of started. The tracks, uh, she's not in the best state, but it's not too bad. Pretty wet. People get up here with their dirt bikes, do they? Or yeah. well, they maybe at some point. Visiting all these locations has really helped me better understand how connected all these places are, but also how thick and remote this bush truly is. There's no doubt that David Tamahedi was extremely capable in the bush. He could cover huge amounts of ground even with his heavy pack. But the question is, did he? Between the dates of April 3rd and April 10th. It's within this window of time that Heidi and her barn would disappear. And it is during this time that there are no official witness sightings of Tamahiri noted by police. Of course, we've now got Barry Lindsay describing a man driving Heidi and her barn up Parakawai Quarry Road who fits Tamahedi's description. But we don't know exactly what date this sighting took place. And if that was Tamahedi, how did he end up driving their car with them in it, casually, 73 kilometres away from Thames, the last place they were seen? What's the connection? What you're about to hear is what can only be described as a bombshell. During my investigation, I've discovered a new, previously unheard witness that I believe holds that missing piece. Hey, Murray, how are
2: you? Nice to
0: meet you. Nice to meet you. Shake you the other one, Oh, right. Okay, I'll just just get my jersey off. It's quite warm, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's lovely over here. Frost there this morning.
0: Wicked frost. Yeah. Yeah.
2: was only a little
0: one here. Oh, no, we had a good one. That voice is Murray Jenkins. I received an email from him only the day before this interview. And given the importance of what he told me, made the drive the very next morning to his home. cool place I like those kind of like things like that it's quite good. cool yeah well just a little bit different yeah nuts. No, it's good gives a bit of character eh yeah did, how far through the podcast did you get or did you just oh, listen to I, 10 minutes?
2: I listened to about 10 minutes yeah. and then I thought well if I keep on listening it might bugger up my
0: yeah nice I like that yeah I so like that.
2: I so I stopped listening
0: Murray is the perfect example of the benefits of a live investigation like this Having come across the podcast, he listened to only 10 minutes before realizing something extremely important and hitting pause. The hairdressers in Thames that were the last that ever officially saw Heidi in her barn? Well, that's not true, he thought. Because I was.
2: Right, uh, Murray Jenkins. I was working for Archer's Auto Springs doing pickup and deliveries all around the North Island. And I can't remember if it was a Wednesday or a Friday, but I think it was a Friday. Was my day to go to Thames, and I stopped in at Terry Jeffcoat's at Kopu on Kopu Road. Um, probably around ten o'clock. I normally got there about Smoko time. Uh, was leaving the yard and the white Subaru came towards me and the reason I noticed is the bull bar on the front and I thought what a good idea because they're a four wheel drive wagon and I thought well that'd be good for hunting and and as they come past there was a stunning looking girl in the passenger seat and there was a white guy driving but the strange thing was there was a Maori boy sitting in the middle of the back seat and just looked out of place. And when I looked at him, we made eye contact and he just come across with a guilty-looking look. I don't, for no apparent reason. They drove past, there was a couple of packs I could see in the back of the station wagon, and that was it.
0: That was it. The most simple, innocuous sighting but carrying importance beyond what Murray could have ever possibly imagined. Had he come forward at the time of the investigation, I have no doubt this sighting would have been a bedrock of the police's case. How fast was the car going past you? Slow. Well,
2: it had come around the intersection and was there was probably cars in front of it. Yep. Probably 30, 40 K, yep. I suppose. Yep. Yeah, there was packs. You could see the packs sticking up.
1: Yeah.
2: I'm trying to remember. It's hard to remember. Oh, I understand. But, but I think there was... The packs that were down flat would look like those European-type packs, but there was another one. I'm pretty sure there was another one in there, like the old New Zealand ones, the wooden frame
1: With the ones. frame on it?
2: Yeah. 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 Ah, huh. Okay. But it's a long time ago now. That would be, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um. The way they were talking, the way she turned around and talked to him is as though, as though he'd just got in the car. But I'm only guessing.
0: Well, I don't need to stress enough to, to you about how important this sighting is. Did you speak to the police at any time?
2: Sort of. I went to the Thames police station a couple of times and there was no one there. Whether it was unmanned or what. So I didn't... But I come back here and I spoke to a mate of mine who lived down the road. He was a cop. And I told him about it. And I never heard anything more about it. But that was when the court case
0: was going on. Is there any way that we could... I know that you know that it was that time, but is there any way we could somehow confirm that it was 1989, that you saw... Um, well... I worked for Arches from 89 to 99.
2: It was a set route that I'd done.
0: I oh, said so there could be some way to figure out where you would have roughly been?
2: Um, I always got to Terry's about Smoko because I used to have Smoko with them. So I'd normally got there about 10 o'clock. Yeah, on a Friday. On a Friday, if it was a Friday. I'm pretty sure it was. Friday would make sense. Because I, I would go... Um, I'd come up to Morrensville, Waitawa, Tahuna, Kiripay, Thames, or Kopu, Thames, down to Pairo, Waihi, Tauranga, and then they end up in Fakatani, and back to Rotorua. Yeah. Oh, that's so, okay. So, so yeah, then, it was a regular, yeah. it wasn't just a one off, it was a regular.
0: If Barry's sighting was the nail, then this sighting is the hammer. Not only does Murray say that he saw Heidi and her in their white Subaru with a mouldy man, but he can even give me a date and a time. Murray used to do a regular route for his deliveries. Monday one area, Tuesday another, and so on. The same every week. And every Friday, he would visit Thames. And on that Friday, he would always stop at the same spot around Smoko or break time. In New Zealand, this is normally between 10am and 11am. The road has changed somewhat since 1989, but Murray pulls out his laptop and shows me the exact spot he saw the car that morning. That's the
2: way you used to turn off here to go to the bridge. That was the turn off. Okay. There's a pub on the corner there. Yep. And Terry's place was in here. I think it's the testing station now. Okay. So you came out of here? I came out of one of these driveways here. Went that way. Went that way. Might have been this driveway. But it's, you know, the driveway might have been over this side then. But say I come out of there, yep. that car was coming from this
0: way. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's going that way. Yeah, it was going towards the Copa Bridge. Um so on my map here just so you yeah, you were here, you saw them going that direction as if they just so that wasn't there. Was that road not there either? Um wish it was a look. So that's where the VTNZ is. So, so there is the
2: bridge. Is. See that white lot road there? Yeah, well the VTNZ
0: is that's where the spot. that's the spot right there and you saw them going in this direction. Yeah. So they must have they've just come round this bend here. Yeah. Okay. And she was
2: leaning back talking to him. So I'm in the passenger seat, she turned this way to and was talking to him. Yeah. I've seen her before in Rotorua. She was at a car sales because she was stunning. <laughs> <laughs> mm. And um but I didn't realise at the time. It didn't all come together until yeah. everything was
0: on the news. But yeah, she'd been in Rotorua. Okay, because she was, was in Rotorua. A... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that would have been. I think they were in Rotorua maybe a week earlier or something like that. Right? Yeah, I I really don't know. I, it's just so that a... was part of your route that you would do. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's what everyone yeah. says. She she stood out.
2: Yeah. Especially
0: yeah. Especially back in those times.
2: Yeah, and that's when I seen him in the back seat, I thought, what are you, you know, it just didn't look right, what are you doing in there? Mm. But,
0: you know, I didn't. And your intuition yeah. at the time, when you saw that, was that? It was strange. And that they'd probably picked him up, hitchhiker. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah.
2: Mm. Yeah. And I don't know if it was, if he was in the car when they come around the corner, I don't know. Yeah. yeah cause he had long hair when he was in the car. Okay. How long, like? Oh, down to the shoulders, I suppose. Oh, that it, long? Yeah, yeah, it was.
0: Okay. Anything else about him you could remember?
2: <sighs> no, I think he, oh, no, not not really. Now it's a bit too long. Yeah. But he was a fine-looking guy. He was a handsome-looking dude. Yeah. And uh, long hair, beard.
0: Beard, okay.
2: I'm pretty sure it was a beard, yeah. Yeah, he just... just looked shady. You know, um, you come from this place, you you can spot, mm, spot things that, you know, and it just didn't look right. But... Mm. The way that he sat in the car and the way that she was talking to him, it just seemed to me they were new. They'd just met. But... Like yeah, as if he's, that just meant to put his gear was, in and... Yeah, and she's having her yarn to him.
0: Where do you want to go? Where are you?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Mm.
0: Fuck. They
2: went past me. It was, I think it would have been between 10 and 11. Yeah. Because I normally got there about 10 o'clock. There was normally smoker time when I got there.
0: Yeah. And, yeah. She stuck out to you,
2: yeah. Well, so did he because
0: he just. (laughs) What's that Mary boy doing in there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in the back of the car when it went past. What? Oh, sorry. What distance away from the car were you? Oh, roughly
2: three, four meters. Oh, really? I suppose yeah. You parked. You know, you you parked to come out of the driveway. It's like sitting in the driveway and the car goes past. You know, so. Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I guess they're going kind of slow because you just come around that around the corner. the
2: corner, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and there were packs in the back. I could see packs in the back, but I'm pretty sure there was an oddball, something oddball on top of the, the flash ones. The frame pack, yeah. Yeah, and there was, I'm pretty sure there was one of those on the top of the two European packs. But, yeah.
0: Have you, over the years since then, have you researched this case or looked, read books or anything like that? No, no just if it comes up on the news or whatever. I'd... Yeah. So you wouldn't know all the details of all the bits of equipment they have and all no. that stuff? No,
2: I have no idea.
0: Okay. And that's why I stopped listening to that part. I didn't want to... Yeah, to taint yourself. To, yeah. Yeah, no, you did the right thing, Murray. Um, yeah, yeah this, is, this is going to be big. I guess what, what for me, is the most important part is... And that's the thing, I know it's very difficult, but if there was a way to... You think it was the Friday, if there was a way to pin it onto the Friday? It was. It was Friday. It
2: was Friday because it was the same run every week.
0: Oh, so that was your Friday run? That was my Friday run. okay. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Yeah. That's ideal. Oh, that makes sense anyway. Yeah. That makes sense. Different route every day. Yeah,
2: okay. But some days you'd go to... The, the place you went to so if it was a Monday I would might go to the same place again on a Wednesday
0: right yeah. but but you only went here on Fridays yeah it
2: was only one day a week ok
0: so it's yeah it's that, a yeah. now that makes perfect sense Fucking the, the amazing thing is you can place a time on it that's fantastic might have been hitchhiking here
2: you know and that's just the impression that it, that I got was that he had just just got in the car. You know, he hadn't been in the car long. Mm. Was the impression I had, but yeah, yeah.
0: Like Barry's sighting, we'll get into the possible identification of this mouldy man in the car in a later episode. But Murray describes him as being rough, like he'd been in the bush for a while. The main thing is that he felt it was an odd fit for that man to be in the car with that couple. I understand that this implies certain racial stereotypes, and this sighting likely wouldn't be viewed in the same way today. But nonetheless, this is what made it stand out to both Barry and Murray at the time in 1989. So it is important. But like Barry said, what the hell is that guy doing in that car with that girl? Crucially, Murray's sighting gives us a time and a date. With all things taken into consideration, it must be between 10am and 11am on Friday, April 7th, 1989. Despite what Murray had believed, this makes his sighting a few hours before the couple would be seen at the hairdressers. And notably, Murray recalls the blonde girl's hair being tied back, i.e. that it hadn't yet been cut. As with any case, everything can hang on the smallest moments. Murray said his gut feeling was that they had just picked up the man hitchhiking in the back, he thinks he saw two expensive-looking European packs, then a larger New Zealand-style pack with a frame thrown on top. David Tamahiti also carried a tramping pack that fits this exact description, and its position on top of the other packs would indicate that they had picked this man up hitchhiking, and he'd simply thrown his pack on top. Now let's consider the location Murray saw the car. Almost directly off the end of the State Highway 25 Kaupuhikawai Highway. The same road Tamahedi claims to have hitchhiked down four days earlier, although this was never corroborated. Whoever gave him a ride that day never came forward. Is it possible that there's a reason why they never came forward? because they couldn't. Did David Tamahedi emerge from the Coromandel forest on State Highway 25, stick out his hand, and catch a ride with a friendly Swedish couple in a white Subaru station wagon, who then drove right past Murray Jenkins? Is this the missing piece? The place where it all began? fateful meeting or is there something more questions yet unanswered you bet this is only the beginning and in the final six episodes of this season of guilt you're going to hear the truth and it's beyond what you could have ever imagined We went to Mount Egmont National Park, that's on the western side of the North Island. We found a nice camping spot that was also cheap, and the guy who ran the site invited us for dinner. They served lamb chops, beef, salad and potatoes. For dessert we got mum's fruit salad and ice cream. It was a really nice meal for us. We're going to Coromandel and Rotorua. It feels strange that it's Good Friday today because at home it's going towards spring when Easter comes, and here it's the other way around. They've got a special Easter bread here. Urban likes it. It's spiced, so it tastes almost like soft ginger cake, and there's some raisins and fruit in it. Sorry this letter is so messy, but it's a bit hard to write in the light of the candle. Heidi. Guilt is a Brevity Studios production. Written, produced, and narrated by me, Ryan Wolfe. All opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that, opinions, and are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself. All persons named are presumed innocent unless proven otherwise in a court of law. Voice acting in this episode, Anna Waddell, is Heidi. If you have any information related to the murders of Heidi and Urban, you can email us anonymously at brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com. You'll find further photos and video on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ. And I highly recommend you join the discussion with thousands of guilt listeners on Facebook at the Guilt Podcast Discussion Group. Guilt is a 100% independent production. We've never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding. You can support us to continue to make great content, plus, get ad free listening, bonus episodes, and early release by becoming a Brevity Plus subscriber on Apple or Acast Plus. You'll find the details in the show notes of every episode. This podcast was written and edited without the use of AI. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.